developing uh, our scientists uh, uh, and, and also looking at, um, you know, how we can have different kinds of scientists working together to innovate. And I think that's uh, where some of these new hybrid methods that are very powerful are, are coming online. Um, uh, and that's one of the challenges is, is getting all the right mix of expertise together. Um, I, I think you can look at it at two levels. I mean, in, in general, for regulated bioanalytical work, we want people who are really observing and looking into the data that they're generating, whether it's being generated with methodology X or methodology Y, it's independent. They need to realize and, and really interrogate the data that they're generating. That's universal. Right, that's a fundamental. And, and, and you know, in terms of the new technologies, I think strong chemistry and or biology right. backgrounds are really critical uh, to working with the new modalities that, that we're dealing with in terms of things. I think there's more emphasis or more importance in terms of the immunology, biology yeah. background than there was years ago when it was just the white powder scenario yeah. where chemistry what right. was more important. But again, we try to hire good scientists with good, you know, that those basic fundamentals that you look for and hopefully, you know, educate them and, and get them up to speed. You know, that's a, you know, that's a good point with regard to the history of bioanalysis. And in the CRO uh, environment, we've seen some high profile, we've seen some talent likes of Roger who came out for, from the, the uh, pharmaceutical companies, and and that was something of a watershed to see that sort of talent going to CROs. CROs weren't recognised and noted for that. But that said, a lot of that um, talent and vanguard cut their teeth on small molecule white powders, and that's not enough anymore. It's not enough right. to to drive the science to address the science that we're tasked yeah. with. So whilst um, whilst we have a lot of talent uh, experience there in in CROs, it's not going to be a substitute for um, growing from within, growing from the grassroots of that. Um, uh, to be honest, I see a lot of biology needs coming yeah. into yeah. Um, bioanalysis Agreed. as a whole. Yeah, and protein chemistry. I right. think Absolutely, that yeah. 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 Exactly. yeah. And getting away, and people at work will probably kill me for saying this, <laughs> but from, from the philosophy that a mass spec can solve anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> it's a piece of the equation. Well, it's, okay. it's a piece of the equation, but it's not the be-all and end-all, and there are other methodologies mm -hmm. that may give a, a more accurate and precise answer, and we, as bioanalysts, have to be willing to keep our minds open and take a look at them as they come around. So I, I think that's a, a, yeah. a fascinating comment. Uh, uh, just within QPS, which does have a very strong uh, small molecule group, and I think they have you know 50 mass specs scattered around the planet. Um, TLM recently just acquired their first, specifically for protein mass spec. Um, but all of our PhDs are immunologists or protein chemists or biologists, uh, and that's absolutely vital. Um, mm -hmm. There's no way that we could have survived uh, these past, you know, 15 years without that sort of culture. Mm -hmm. um, and to us, honestly, there's there's a bit of a curiosity because. 
you know, in, in the biologics that we have a dozen platforms and mass spec now is just one more. Exactly. And, and it, it is sort of a, um, a, a change in paradigm, I think, for a lot of, a lot of the, you know, air quotes, old school uh, guard. Um, but we're very happy to integrate it. You know, the validation is a validation. Uh, reducing the data, you know, yep. is still done in pretty much the same ways. Um, it's a very comfortable transition, but you have to have those key I immunologists and biologists in place. I, I they think all the need to be working it together. It yeah. it it's very analogous to the old school going back 30 years when you know we were using either UV fluorescence, electrochemistry, whatever worked to solve the situation. And mass spec at that time when it came out was viewed as just another tool in the toolbox. But there's a generation that has grown up just with mass spec <laughs> and tried to fit everything into the mass spec paradigm. And I'm guessing that that's not going to be totally appropriate going forward. Right. We have to get away from bioequivalence bioanalysis and, and uh, both the CRO side and the sponsor side, but it, it, it doesn't even stop there. It, it goes to the regulators, the, uh, the, the health authorities themselves are challenged with the new science that we've, we've got to deal with. So we are all in this together, and <laughs> it's the relationships that will make it successful. Yeah, yeah I think the scientific collaborations and figuring out how to solve the problems with more complex drugs that don't neatly fit into a white powder or a you know, standard protein. Yeah, and I took this from a different angle, maybe, when I, when I read it. Firstly, I think the, the era when mass spectrometry came into bioanalysis, there were a lot higher standard of mass spectrometrists around. You yeah. know, I come from an era where you actually had to know the inside of a machine, and that worries me deeply, yeah. with e even in, within our own group, about the general knowledge around the technique mm -hmm. itself. But, I mean, I, I can't speak for graduates in the, in the U.S., but we have people that seem to come out of university with very few lab hours mm -hmm. of time and you know so I think there's a there's a lot of good people in the industry you know we look for PhDs now you know and I mean what's well, our current recruiting strategy so you bring up an excellent point because 10 to 1 our new hires are biologists you know cellular molecular biology they don't know what a mass spec is and it used to be when you're doing the white powder stuff, it was predominantly chemists that you hired. Sure. But now the recruiting strategy is typically PhDs coming out of biology programs. And their awareness of what a mass spectrometer is is almost, it's just a box. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that is worrisome because when you're trying to troubleshoot an instrument or you start buying these modalities where you're using high resolution instruments again. Mm -hmm. Now I grew up in the era of mag sectors and so it's nothing to think about a high, you know, high resolution. Well now it's new again. Um, <laughs> but you, the complexity of the instruments is not then being supported by the universities because they're just treating them as a, the software's easy. So that is worrisome because you don't know if they're answering the question correctly and you don't know if, well, the res what resolution should I have? Well, it's whatever the instrument gives me. Um, and so that is a big change. And so we still have the army of bachelor's degrees and whatever to handle the bioequivalent, so that is a core part of our business. But when you're looking at these new modalities, that's when we're going out and recruiting out of the universities, folks with traditionally biology degrees or biology backgrounds, and then you're having to start training them mm -hmm. on what a mass spectrometer is. Now, what we've been able to do is the proximity of our ligand binding group to the mass spec group is just a corridor. Mm -hmm. And so we've cross-trained them. 
And yeah. so you basically say, you're gonna spend six months in the lab, you're gonna apply your biology and to help us with some of those uh, immunocapture workflows, some of the protein digestion workflows, but now you're gonna to have to learn how to use the mass spectrometer. And so you're kind of doing that balance. Yeah, no, that's what we've found very useful as well, that we've had the uh, immunoassay scientists and the mass spectrometrists working together in one yeah. group. Yeah. And that's, uh, that, that, that's been great. Yeah. It gets rid of the mystique. Yeah. 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 Well, and you need the agility to be able to move fluidly from one technique to the other because different troubleshooting requirements may need one platform or another and, and actually bringing those two communities together is just, it's just critical now for these new molecules. It seems somewhat obvious, right? We're bringing together two different sciences, two different techniques. We need to br bring together two different sets of education, two different sets of training, and, and the right teams. One aspect of the, the large molecules, and maybe just the, the period in time that we're in at the moment that I, I, we struggle with as CROs, is that a lot of them are directed at oncology. Mm -hmm. And that is a different mix to what CROs have been built around in terms of the massive numbers of study samples. Mm -hmm. And so we're in an environment whereby we have to do profitable business from yep. a lot of higher proportion of method development, method validation. Yep. Um, and that's, that's difficult for the whole, um, the whole industry, I, and particularly maybe the purchasing offices have to adapt to that mode of thinking. It's, it's less of a challenge having that discussion with the scientists. They recognize the challenge which, is, which, is a, which are coming up. But um, for everybody that's involved in the business, not everybody can see that those subtleties have a profound impact upon um, the, uh, the, the so business type so that it is. So Steve, you're talking about slower study recruitment and, and like with oncology tri trials, a less steady flow of samples in compared to, you know, your, your big BE studies and, and the like. That is part of it, okay. but also just the very nature of the science that we're doing means okay. that it's extended method developments. Mm -hmm. yeah method validations, yep. and those have traditionally been something that we've been prepared to basically do it at a minimum profit margin right. to mm. be able to make it up on uh, sample analysis. Yeah. That's, not the, that's yep. not the mix anymore. So yep. we all have to be able to adapt to that. Mm -hmm. I wonder what the future might hold for that. I mean, I know certainly our own company is trying to invest much more in experimental medicine studies where effectively you're doing quite small studies, but mm -hmm. they're very information dense. And, uh, you know, the bioanalysis itself will be a small part of that, but there'll be flow, right. histology, yep. you know, and I don't know how, I don't know how that's going to be coped with, because they are small studies as well. You know, yeah. And with the more complex molecules, you might have multiple assays. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. right? It may not just be one assay that you're looking at. But just one price, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's always been a, certainly with uh, speaking to people that are outside the bioanalytical community that really don't have the level of understanding around moving from small molecules to new modalities that, you know, they're not substitutional. And they're not substitutional in terms of the technical ability, the skills that you need, the technology that's needed, and also the costs that are associated with those programs. And, and I think that is quite a difficult thing to get across to, to our organizations, to get them to understand that you know a small molecule method development might take a couple of days, but 
you know, this this new modality. Well, you know, it's going to take us six months, and they look at you, <laughs> you know, with astound, you know, astounded at what you're saying to them. So there's a piece of, I think, in our roles about educating our businesses mm. to get them to really understand what what you know. Uh, these programs actually require, yeah. um, you know, so that there is a better understanding of that. And actually, even even our procurement colleagues, you know, getting them to understand, um, you know, the differences because they're they're just looking for the best price. But actually, if they had a bit more of a technical understanding about what we're trying to achieve, that perhaps they wouldn't push us so hard to always go with the cheapest. You know, if they have a, a level of yeah. understanding t to help them understand why we're pushing back. So going back to the people piece, are you being successful in your individual businesses of getting the people with the skills to address the kind of interesting problems that we're seeing coming through? You know, are you being successful in recruiting and training them, or is there indeed a gap? Is it a struggle? Well, there's not as much industry consolidation. So when you know some certain companies, large pharma, want to merge, there's an influx of of new fresh <laughs> talent. Point, yeah. So that's disappeared a little bit. Um, it is cyclical, um, to be honest. I mean, it really depends on how effective you are in integrating and recognizing that you've got to get embedded in university programs. Mm -hmm and have internships or even teach at these colleges to be able to attract or at least identify. Trying to get somebody to move from a farmer into a CRO is still a challenge unless there's some sort of consolidation going on. Uh, and so that flow of personnel has slowed. Um, I think the, the pharma industry, certainly the large pharma, has sort of stabilised a little bit and so there's, lot, there's a lot less of the traffic of people moving or looking to get out of their current situations. Um, the, that then creates that gap because we can hire bachelors or, you know, those are just flooding the market, but they're not trained. Mm. Uh, and so getting that talent, which is what we need for these new modalities, that is challenging. Um, and so again, our strategy has been plug into the universities. Um, you know, I'll teach and I'll look for interns and we offer those kind of programs to start attracting them and that is now only just starting to pick up. But they're predominantly biologists. There's yeah. a lot more biologists than there are chemists. And that seems a really forward-thinking solution. You know, that, that is, you know, rather than just going shopping and buying what's available, actually looking ahead and, and saying, this is what we need. Because that's a long-term investment to do Correct. what you're describing, Roger. I mean, is anyone else doing that kind of thing or got all the solutions or are you just merely hiring what's out there and finding it's not there? Well, I, I think we're um, um, realising that we need to train people, right? That we're not going to, any time we're doing anything that's uh, novel, we're not going to find people that can come in and already, you know, have been... Uh, doing that kind of analysis and so it's really finding uh, good scientists that um, have good analytical skills and then training. I'll, I'll take that even a step further and that is that um, they don't teach GCP and GLP at the university uh, and there's a very good chance if I grab somebody from another institution they will not do GLP the way we do it. Mm -hmm. uh, so at the end of the day, it's yeah. it's training, 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 and 
I don't want to say that I'm resigned to that. Uh, it is what it is. The plus side of it is if you invest in a person and you do take care of them and you give them opportunities, right. they'll be with you and they'll be, you know, your color of blue right. uh, for many, many years. Yeah, I think that's going to be very important to keep people engaged is the yeah. development, the scientific development. I think that the on-the-job training is is absolutely critical, and and like you said, people do things differently, and they have to learn the the company specific processes. But there's also huge potential for us to partner with universities who are looking to market their ability to get these young scientists in positions in our companies, right? And so when you develop those sorts of collaborations and start that type of open discussion, then we can give the feedback to the universities regarding what we want our candidates to know and what will give them a leg up in our interview process. And so, you know, in some of those conversations, things like GLP and GCP are definitely on the table. It's a challenge, though, isn't it? You, we, we're talking about trying to find the best scientists, mm. and then we're trying to, we have to sell them on the fact that they're going into a regulated bioanalytical right. lab yeah. where there's a ton of documentation, <laughs> yeah. and you can see that they immediately, they, <laughs> their eyes glaze over and think, I'm a, I'm a PhD scientist, and you want me to be doing all of this documentation. Mm -hmm. It's a certain talent. It's a certain type of person Agreed. that you, you have to seek out. And then once you find that talent, I'm a big believer in promoting from within and keeping that, um, that consistency within the company as much as possible. It's what our uh, sponsors like to see as well. Um, but it's a, it's a long-term investment in your people. Now, there is a generation coming through, and we've all got the, the I call them millennials, that have an expectation, or in fact, a sense of entitlement, that within two years, that their next promotion or their next, they're ready for management. And so that does create a, a sort of a talent gap, because how much have you learned in two years? Yes, you've trained them for probably a year. You might get a year out of them and says, well, I've been here long enough. I'm now entitled to my next promotion. Get me out of the lab. I've done my time. Yeah. And it's yeah. been very different for the majority of us, I would think, if we probably spent at least 10 years in the lab enjoying it. Well, two years is plenty. So what you finish up having to do is to create a culture where you've got a core and then you've got the sort of the sun and you're the solar system of these young'uns coming in, um, getting trained two years, promoted from within, but they're not going to stay and then really learn mass spectrometry or learn to really invest, it is the next step. Now, PhDs are a little bit different because there is an expectation that first I have to prove myself, you know, I've done my degree and whatever else, but now I'm going to apply it. And you usually get a few more years out of them. But then the next step is, well, I want to be the manager, I want to have a group. But if you promote from within and they've learned, you're more likely to get a little bit more value and you can continue to expand that solar system, if you like, where you've got experienced people in the middle and you've got these people zooming in like comets. Okay, two years, I'm out, now I want to be in a manager or potentially even leaving your company and going working for pharma because they have a perception that the grass is greener out there. Um, but you do have to expect that there is turnover um, of talent and certainly at the the bachelor's level, um, not so as much with PhDs, but there is this millennial generation that are coming through fairly quickly. Does that model work in pharma? Because my experience of pharma is it, it doesn't. It's very much more static situation in right. pharma, and, and they have yeah. much more difficulty. Don't, think, yeah. don't have as many people leaving, and they have difficulty recruiting. I, I think the challenge in pharma 
is to keep people who are good in the lab in the lab recognizing that that's really their talent rewarding them appropriately and trying to at least in pharma eliminate the halo of management because i you know it's not what it's cracked up <laughs> to be yeah, in, in terms of things. There's a lot of, you know, overhead and facilitation more than science as, as being yeah. a manager these days, at least in, in pharma. There's different types of leadership, isn't yes. there? Yes. Right. It's about management is one type of leadership, but scientific leadership, yes. actually in some respects, I'd say scientific leadership is perhaps the more tricky leadership yeah. style to have because the you know the the influence is different you know you've got to have a rep you keep your reputation um you know you you want to influence the business to to um to take your advice on a scientific level and uh, yeah i think that's you know there's super yeah. value in in promoting and rewarding that kind of leadership yeah, mm -hmm. yeah just following on for that comment about the farmer being a little bit more static and so once you're in there, you're there for, you've got a career, you've got an opportunity for a career. At a CRO setting, you're always growing. I cannot recruit fast enough. And so at any one time, I probably, in a, every month, I'm probably bringing on five new people. That is definitely not a static organisation. So you're always constantly training. Um, you've got groups set aside specifically for training in the GLPs and all the rest of it. Um, so it's, it's a very dynamic um, existence where you've got people, the millennials who come through, you get this two-year kind of kind of turn through um, while you're adding and building and building and expanding. Um, and so it's not uncommon uh, for our team to double every 12 months, right, because of the workload coming through and that kind of thing. So I've never saw that at Pharma. Mm -hmm. There you had to Correct. wait for somebody to leave or you might get an extra head count this year because uh, you've got a new um, high-profile project, and it's a very different environment in the CRO. So you have to be ready to spend and invest in that training, uh, which not necessarily um, you can hang on to them a little bit longer in pharma, and that um, training can be a little longer. Here we're trying to get them up and running within a, you know at least three months at, at the tops, you know, in the in being able to contribute. With the complexity of the science that we're mm. challenged with, would those from the, the pharma companies here, um, would they have an opinion on whether um, they, it is an encouragement to outsource the regulated work? Once it gets beyond the method development and method validation, you need to keep the talent that you've got in-house um, enthralled in the work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. So we've certainly seen a pattern of once the assay gets to the point of uh, validation and regulated, dare I say, GLP work, and I know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> GLP yeah. work necessarily, um, but that is, um, that's basically a catalyst to maybe outsource at that point because you don't want to lumber that talent with doing the regulated bioanalysis yeah. work in-house. I, I think the challenge we tend to outsource after we do a couple studies and actually demonstrate that the assay is running well because I think there were some comments today that you know you spend time validating an assay looks great in validation you get your first study samples and then the assay blows up yeah. we don't want to see that happening to, to a CRO because then troubleshooting it becomes even harder so we, we tend to support the first few studies internally 
when the assay is running well and, and things are relatively locked down, that's when we'll outsource. It's also important to us because we're the ones who are going to be writing the regulatory submission and responding to regulatory questions to have some internal knowledge about the compound that you're working on to be able to really fill out and answer those questions. So we, we go a little bit later than what you said, Steve, for the, the reasons that I just elaborated on. Yeah, we're the same. I mean, validation and robustness of an assay are not the same thing. And yeah, the cost of... The cost of trying to troubleshoot assays is, well, it's costly for us, you know, and it's costly. Now, is, is the thought to outsource and those pivotal studies are at a CRO because the CRO then gets the, you know, the, the inspections from the regulators and we are perhaps more used to it. Is that the reason um, it, or...? It, it, it's advantageous, but as it comes down, we as sponsor are ultimately responsible oh, yeah. for the submissions. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I would agree that infrastructure at CROs are much more prepared for their regulatory audits. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know if infrastructure is the primary driver okay. for outsourcing. No, I think there's a utilization of your workforce thing. Yep. You know, I mean, if you look at, like, you know, Onco studies, and, you know, they, they sit on the label, you know, they're high value to. The label but they're not necessarily high value for the company to do they're long term you know there's the regulatory framework around them i mean we so it's just a value judgment on the on the on the business i mean you know we we look at we put the earlier we keep the earlier stuff in mm -hmm. because that's where project teams are, are looking for fast turnaround you know there's lots of questions they're trying to do experimental medicine stuff now so they're iterative and project teams are phoning up all the time mm -hmm. you know right and it's just slightly easier to control yep. from our, yep. our perspective. Yep. From, from our perspective, it's clear that outsourcing strategies differ dramatically among, among companies. And as you can imagine, the, the companies who do not have bioanalytical labs, I mean, we're, we're supporting all of their bioanalysis. And so um, it's a bit of a paradigm shift in that, you know, we're the ones doing the method development, the validation, really truly understanding the assay, consulting with the client, advising them on, on the regulatory as aspects as well. And so the sponsor is ultimately responsible. Um, that's that's how the regulations read, but there there are very different relationships um, between different types of but, companies and, but, and CROs. But I caution, you know, having done a number of due diligence mm -hmm. for acquisitions and and mm -hmm. opportunities, invariably we find issues with the bioanalytical that was done by these virtual companies mm -hmm. at various CROs around the world. So I, I certainly recognize the role that CROs are playing in such work, but also, you know, push the science to the clients and make them recognize that their asset may be more appealing to somebody if the quality of the bioanalytical work mm -hmm. is really top notch as opposed to just getting by. So right. recognize yeah. that role that you have in such situations. So when you're in that situation, do you have uh, some context of the biology or the project? Because it, it, it seems that 
in general, that might be that piece might be missing. <laughs> in general, um, those types of situations are very close collaboration, and it's that scientist to scientist discussion that's ongoing throughout. And we we see a mix. We will get into certain scenarios where we are not given even a structure, a, a structure um, yeah. and we're asked to to, to work on it. Um, uh, so it, it's it's a it's a full mix, um, and and definitely I think um, I think there has to be a shift there as we get into these more complicated um, modalities that we are much more connected right back to the biology, and that worries me to be honest as to is the the infrastructure there to be able to uh, facilitate that to make that happen. Um, because the timeline with some of these smaller companies are as aggressive as anything. I mean, mm -hmm. they, that's first, uh, um, they've got to get that through before they run out of money. Um, <laughs> and so there's a, an intense pressure upon the timelines. And we're in there with them trying to do the best that we can. Mm -hmm. I, I would say that in my experience, from a small molecule perspective, I think what you described about, you know, keeping... Um, early regulatory facing studies in-house is something of something that's going into the past i think that's an old model in mm. in my opinion i think that, you know we've got great experience with using cro's for small molecule bios standard small molecule bioanalytical delivery and and in that space I, I feel very much more comfortable to to say actually we don't need to have our hands on every single molecule we can hand that off and and really let the cro's do that work for us right the way from method development through to delivering regulatory studies but where there's scientific innovation in the portfolios when actually we're learning a lot about these molecules and we haven't got 20 years of experience of how to handle these molecules it, it becomes very much more important i think in that space to retain the capability to be able to to do some of the regulatory activities um, on those studies in-house but working very closely with our partners to share our experiences very early on so that you don't have to wait too long before you can really hand over with confidence that piece of work mm -hmm. to the CRO. Mm -hmm. So going back to the people gap thing. Is there anything, I think you know, Roger sort of suggested, uh, getting in there early with university training, yep. and, and we talked about in-house training. Are there any other potential solutions? You know, is, is there something that can be done in a, in a non-competitive way around training staff, you know, in terms of university courses, etc., teaching whether it be GLP, whether it be mass spectrometry, whether it be immunoassay, whether it be biology, pharmacology, you know, is, is there a gap there mm -hmm. that maybe we as a community should be looking to bridge? Right. Yeah. So as, it depends on the academic institution. So you go to a large, you know, state-funded school or something like that. Um, they're more interested in the research, academic research, and they're not as keen to have you come in and talk about regulated bioanalysis. It's more about what biology, what are you seeing, what, can, what tools can you teach our students to use. That's one approach. Community colleges is a different animal. 
you've got individuals that may be working and they're going to a community college to get a degree in something like that, the community colleges are very much more interested in learning a vocation. And if that vocation involves regulated bioanalysis and they need to learn GLP, very much more open. And that's typically where we recruit our interns from. But you still, I, I'm looking for those bright individuals, and those are typically in graduate programs at the large universities. So it is a two-prong attack. Uh, we do job fairs pretty much every other month, um, and those are most successful at a community college, but then when I'm pulling in my PhD um, or graduate students, those are those small, you know, those larger schools. So it's a bit of both. And of course we're talking here about North America and, and, and Europe, but I, 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 I'm not sure if the, the situation's a bit different in mm -hmm. India and China, where I understand that there is more effort put into at the, at the, at the school level in terms of preparing people for this need. Uh, and maybe there's a lesson to, to learn from, from, from those cultures and, and countries as well. Well, I, I'm sorry. That's okay. What about um, the idea of industry training courses, though, right? Mm -hmm. So something that we could do together as a group um, that doesn't necessarily need to involve the universities. I mean, we have quite a few um, different bioanalytical working groups out there. Can we leverage that and create some material that's that's highly relevant to position people to start thinking about some of these new technologies? Well, there is a little bit of mm -hmm. that training, you know, with the workshops uh, here at RIB, at AAPS, and so I think that that certainly helps, especially with, um, with you know, new methods coming, new types of molecules. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, AAPS has certainly expressed an interest in doing some virtual training and, mm -hmm. and the like. Actually, for certain areas, they have a pretty full curriculum. Not for BA, but for other areas. So do you think there'd be an appetite in pharma and CRO if CROs offered a training service? Of mm. course. I mean, it's, it's, again, if it can be commoditized and priced, we'll, we'll <laughs> offer it. <laughs> People go to the CRO to be trained? Yes. Or? Yeah, but, yeah. But you know, to, to some, to, I think virtual training is 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 great, but that hands-on experience and and spending, you know, a, a quite a significant period of time. I said, you know, I would say learning about the mass spec, you know, and, and learning how and to take one apart. You could have the journey going the other way as well, with the people from the CROs being able to come into the farmer and learn a bit more broadly about yeah. the project and and being able to put their data and their work into context of the project a little bit more. It's an interesting idea. So Neil is a, is a freelance consultant now. Um, <laughs> the prospect of online training is mm. something that um, I've seen consultants and I've been involved in myself um, do. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a whole culture, there's a whole um, age group coming through there where online access to training is um, it's just normal for them. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's, there's, we'll see more of that happen. At the end of the day, it's what's the quality of the talent that comes out at the other end of it? I mean, mm -hmm. do they have that ability to, to, to address problems, to be a solution provider in our companies? Yeah. And I, I think you're right about the online training, but the thing is, that at the end of the day, the job we do in bioanalysis is a highly practical skill as well, and it, there's nothing beats getting your hands dirty, mm -hmm. making mistakes, and learning from them. Yeah, oh yeah the hands-on aspect right. is, is really critical. Yeah. 
Now, is pharma donating equipment to universities? I know back in, you know, a few years ago, we did, in fact, donate equipment to local universities mm -hmm. as yeah. an approach to get people hands-on experience. Is that still a viable approach? Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, I think so. Yeah. It, it was certainly, speaking from my former life at GlaxoSmithKline, they made it difficult for a little while mm -hmm. and had to fight tooth and claw, but right. we yeah. managed it still. Right. Yeah. Um, We've got some good examples. That's where our older triple quads are going now. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. Okay. So um, I think the conversation's kind of come into a natural end. I think we've kind of covered mm -hmm. what we talked yeah. about. Has anyone got anything else in particular they'd like to bring up? No? Mm -hmm. no well, I, I, I personally found that's good. Very good conversation. It's kind of interesting having a camera there. I, I personally <laughs> started to forget about it after a little while. But I, I think, you know, yeah. I really enjoyed that. And thank you all for your contributions. Yeah. And uh, let's go and get something to eat. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, everyone. Thank you. Yeah.